0: All right, good morning. Welcome. My name is Kevin. If I haven't met you before, welcome to Center Church. Uh, it's great to be able to gather together this morning. Also, happy Mother's Day to all the moms. I hope that this is a, a special day for you and a great chance to just reflect on uh, God's kindness to you um, in a variety of ways. Okay, so we are currently preaching through the New Testament book of Acts, and this is what we typically do, preach through books of the Bible. And so uh, Acts is where we're at right now, and Acts is a record of the Acts of Jesus Christ. So if you would turn to the beginning of the book, uh, your Bible might say the Acts of the Apostles. But what the book makes clear is the profound nature, the, the power that's displayed that is beyond humanity. And, and that power is found in Jesus. It's not found in us. It's not found in the apostles, uh, at least not solely in them. If it's found in them, it's, it's Jesus. Jesus. In them. And so, really, what the book of Acts is is the Acts of Jesus Christ in and through his church. And so for us today here as well, like when we think about this, we are not followers of the followers of Jesus. We are followers of Jesus. The point is Him and Him alone. And so when we gather together here on Sunday morning, or when we gather together in our community groups, or in uh, any other sort of venue, we are, it's not about us. That, that's not the point. What we're doing here and now is not about us. So if you came in here and you thought, I want to make this about me, like, we're going to be really explicit. This isn't about you. Okay, this is about Jesus. This is for you. And we are for you. And Jesus is for you. But this is not about you. This is explicitly about Jesus, And that's what the whole of the book of Acts is about. It's he sends his Holy Spirit and he comes upon his church and he transforms people and he heals people. It is about Jesus Christ. And so today we're going to be in Acts chapter 13. So if you've got a Bible or device, you can turn there or swipe there. You'll also be able to follow along on the screen behind me. We talk, uh, I talked a number of weeks ago about how in Acts you run into some parts of the book, there's just a ton of names and a ton of places, and it can feel kind of overwhelming because it's just like, this is confusing, there's so much going on, and and that's going on this morning. So we're going to split this up into a couple of different sections today so that we can kind of deal with a whole lot of names and places. So let me read the first five verses of Acts 13. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul, for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that it instructs us, it encourages us, it challenges us, I pray that it would do all those things this morning as we fix our eyes on Jesus. But most of all, would would you build us up through your Holy Spirit? Would you build faith in our hearts? And would you destroy faith? Faith in our hearts that wants to put faith in anything other than Jesus. So would you accomplish that in these moments together this morning? In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Okay, so this section begins with some commentary on the church in Antioch. And so I want to make a couple of observations about that church in Antioch. But before I do that, a comment on what's happening within kind of the bigger picture of Acts here, beginning in chapter 13. So, much of the remaining book is focused on journeys being taken by followers of Jesus. And so, typically, these are referred to as missionary journeys, okay? You've got followers of Jesus who are going to go on a mission, and they are going to share Jesus with people and in places that have not heard about Jesus or are not believing in Jesus. So, What I want to do, though, is I want to tweak this phrase missionary journeys slightly. Because what's more accurately happening on these journeys is churches are being started or churches are being planted. So Jesus' followers are going to places where a church does not exist. And they are preaching the gospel. And then people will believe in Jesus. And then they're going to set a church in order. They're going to find leaders. And they're going to build that church up. So they're going to spend time in a given location and train people up so that then a church of Jesus will be birthed there. And then after the church is established or maybe their life is in danger, they will move on to another location to start another church. And here at Center Church, we believe in church planting. We were a church plant about seven and a half years ago. But church planting has so many beneficial aspects. One of the things that it does is, is it keeps people focused on Jesus' church. Okay? Church planting helps keep people focused on Jesus' church. Not, not the many other fights a lot of churches want to have, but a church that's focused on church planting is going to be focused on Jesus' church. Also, what church planting does is it keeps people engaged with non-Christians. So we want to care for Jesus' church, we want to build up Jesus' church, but then we also want to not just turn into a country club and be focused on us, we want to be focused on those who don't yet know Jesus as well. We're not trying to grow a church by just getting people to come from other churches. Though we're not opposed to that, but we would love to see non-Christians be moved from disbelief to belief in Jesus. And church planting keeps you on the front lines of this battle, going out to people who don't yet know know Jesus. Also, church planting, oftentimes the venues are small. And so, church planting keeps you hustling for Jesus. Jesus. And I think this is a really good thing. It it allows us to feel urgency. So many of us growing up in the West, we just want to be comfortable, okay? When can we actually just put our feet up? And we don't want to do that here at Center Church. We don't want to just seek comfort. We want to be on the front lines. We want to feel this press, to have to trust Jesus, not trust in possessions or circumstances, but to have to cling to Jesus and only to Jesus. So church planting is about advancing the gospel. We use that word a lot here at Center Church. It means basically the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. This is the good news of Jesus. And so church planting is about advancing that message about Jesus. Not just trying to build our own brand or build our empire. It's about advancing the good news of Jesus. This is also why we as a church give money towards church planting as well. Because we believe in it and we want to care deeply about it. Okay, so there's this church in Antioch then. Right, And we're told that there's numerous prophets and teachers. So one of the things that we can deduce from this is that the church in Antioch was focused on raising up leaders. They wanted to see their people grow and mature and become leaders in the church. And some of these people would eventually be sent out to other churches as well. So they're not just trying to hoard them all for themselves. But the general culture of the church in Antioch is one of training, one of building each other up. Center Church, we don't want you to have the perspective that you come on Sunday just to receive. That's important. It's necessary to receive. But we always want there to be tension here that you are receiving so that you might give. You are comforted so that you might comfort others. You are blessed so that you might be a blessing to others. So, do you perceive your church engagement? as being about caring for others? Do you consider when we gather together, are you thinking about how you might be able to build others up? How you might be able to train others? And, and this can we don't have to think really formally with this. This can be really informal as well. Helping a child know how to put a chair on a cart and putting it in the right direction, right? Like, this can happen with our tech team. This can happen with greeting with in the children's rooms. This can happen with the worship team. It can happen in a lot of ways formally, but this can happen in a lot of informal ways as well. Is that how you think about a given Sunday morning? Are you thinking in this way? Or do you just kind of, are you just on autopilot and you're just coming and the natural bent is to receive? And we want that, but we don't want to stop there. We don't want it to just be about receiving. This is why we strongly value what happens in children's rooms, why we care deeply about the youth group here at Center Church, why we want to call all of us to be part of community groups and not just to just show up when it's convenient, but to invest and give yourself to that time, to be prepared to go to that time, to care about those who are opening up their homes and cleaning their homes and providing food and understand that all of this is a sacrifice, that you're not just a consumer. You're not just a leech. You're investing. You're pouring in to the leaders, building them up as well. This is why I give time towards developing leaders here at Center Church every week. We want to be a church that's committed to the training and building up of others. We want to see the gospel advance not just in our hearts, but through our lives as well. So, please don't just view all that I've just been talking about as the role of the pastors or the role of the overseers. This is all of us. Anybody who's a follower of Jesus, this is the call for all of us. Even children as well. You can help train and build up those younger than you as well. Okay, so I want to press this a bit further, that this is true for all of us, by focusing on the people mentioned here in Acts 13. Because see, this list of people actually provides us some helpful perspective about what's going on in the church of Antioch. So, here's the list of people. So, we've got Barnabas. Barnabas was a Jewish individual. We read about him back in Acts 4. We also read about him in other parts of the New Testament. He's known as an encourager, and he played a significant role in the early church. We also hear about here of Simeon and Lucius. Both of these individuals are of African descent. So really clearly here in just the first couple of individuals what we can understand, and this is going to, uh, we'll see this even more in the other names, but what we see here is there's a whole host of ethnic diversity in the church in Antioch. But then we also get to Manaean. He is a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch. Okay, so we might read that and think, Nothing. Herod the Tetrarch means nothing to us. Okay, so there is an individual known as John the Baptist. John the Baptist had his life end in a, well, not very fortuitous way. He was beheaded by this individual, by his command, Herod the Tetrarch's command. Also, Herod the Tetrarch is mentioned in one of the gospel accounts as mocking Jesus. As it's leading up to Jesus' crucifixion, he mocked Jesus. And this is his lifelong friend. Menaean was right by his side. And then Saul is mentioned here as well. We know from Acts chapter 9 that Saul had killed Christians. He oversaw the persecution of Christians. His whole intent at one point in his life was to terrorize Christians. So the church in Antioch was an eclectic mix. You had people who had been haters of God, violent towards Christians. But now those individuals have been washed, cleansed, forgiven, In fact, these now are the leaders in the church in Antioch. They are those who are playing a vital role in gospel advancement. And as we think about our own lives, this should incite a ton of hope in us. God uses people like that. God can and will use people like you. Whatever your issues are, and we've got our own set of issues, but God can and will use misfits just like us. God can take people like us and do impressive things, impressive as He would define it, maybe not as this world might define it, But God can take people like us and do impressive things for his kingdom if we are bought in. If we are trusting him, if we are submitted to his plan and to his ways. But I think a big difference here in all of this is priority. See, each of these individuals had to come to this point where they were surrendering their dreams. They had to come to a point where their lives were oriented around the gospel. They had to get to the end of themselves. They had to see Jesus as better, as his mission as more worthwhile than their own mission, than their own dreams, than whatever it was that they were chasing for their selfish gain. They had to let go of that and realize that Jesus and his ways, his mission was far better. And that's true for us too. We have to get to a point where we get to the end of ourselves. Where we will love others more than ourselves. And not selectively choose who's easy to love more than ourselves, but this is who we are. We love others indiscriminately more than ourselves. We have to get to this point where we will love non-Christians, not just say, this person has a different political view than I do, so we dismiss them, but we have to be willing to love people who think differently than us, who act differently than us. They need Jesus. And even in these verses, the picture here is of Christians withholding things from themselves. It's talking about people fasting and praying, right? They're they're literally withholding food from themselves. And and then they're also giving of their leaders. These people whom they value, who are leading their church, they're sending them out to other people, knowing they might never come back. They might be killed. And there's no sense in these verses that they're doing it begrudgingly. They understand that they've been swooped up into something much bigger and much better than themselves. And that's what the gospel is. It's something much bigger, something much better than us. Oftentimes we don't see that though, right? We get lost in our little worlds and we think this thing, this possession, this technology, this circumstance, this job, this house, this location, whatever it is, is what we really need to focus on. And it's a reminder for us we need to be caught up into something much bigger, much better than ourselves. Okay. So it says they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus, and then they arrived at Salamis. So if you're a visual learner, okay, here we go. So you can see right here you've got Antioch, right, and Seleucia, and then they're moving down here to Cyprus, got Salamis there, and then they're going to head to Paphos, and that's what we're going to read about here Um, in the next chunk of verses. So, Acts 13, verse 6. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, and summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elimus the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who is also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord?" And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Okay, so let's start here and just sort out some of these names that we're encountering here. So first of all, we've got Bar-Jesus, who's also known as Alimus. okay? So this is the same person, all right? So he's a magician trying to do impressive things, trying to have impressive company by being with the proconsul, okay? But he's also a false prophet, okay? So he is teaching wrong things. All right, then we've also got Sergius Paulus, and it says that this individual is a proconsul, so this would be a proconsul is the highest-ranking Roman official in a given province, okay? So this individual has clout. He carries authority. We also read here that he's a man of intelligence, so he's an intellectual, all right? He'd probably liked to have philosophical Conversations. And so he sought to hear the word of God. So he summoned Barnabas and Saul. He wanted to hear more about this Christian faith. So this is Sergius Paulus. Then we also hear about Saul, who was also called Paul. So if you've been in this series with us up to this point, maybe you've wondered why we've talked so little about Paul. Because we've really made, I made one really indirect comment about Saul becoming Paul. But we haven't really talked about this yet up to this point. So oftentimes, people, they think about Paul and his name being changed in Acts 9 when conversion happens. Okay? And so they think, oh, he was Saul, now he's Paul. Paul. But actually, this is the first time it's mentioned in the book of Acts, which is four chapters later. So likely, this name change has to do with other factors, like the fact that he's now going to be sent to Gentiles, okay? So Paul is a Roman version of his name. So it would make more sense for him to use that name as he's going to be with Gentiles and Romans and seeking to bring the gospel to them. But there's another factor going on here behind the scenes a little bit, and that's the meaning of the name Paul. So the the meaning of that name is small or humble. So there's a real sense, this is how Paul understands himself. Now that Jesus has taken hold of his life, he understands himself to not. He, he used to think he would do these great and impressive things. He knew Old Testament law, he persecuted Christians, he was filled with zeal. He was trying to climb the ladder within the Jewish religious system. But now, he understands himself to be small. He understands that his life is about Jesus. It's not about himself any longer. One of the places we really see this clearly is in Philippians chapter 3. This is Paul writing, and this is what he says. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Right before this, Paul has just listed out, out all these reasons that he has to boast about himself. Because he's this and because he's that and because he's done this thing. And so now he's saying, I count all these things as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but a righteousness which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. So he's saying here, That his righteousness, this idea of him being right or being made right, is predicated not on what he has done, but on Jesus and all that he has done for him. So his righteousness is based on him believing in the righteous one. And then he says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Paul understands that he has become small, and his life now is about Jesus. It's not about him. It's not about him climbing a ladder. It's not about him looking impressive. It's about him losing, which is not a very American way of thinking about things, is it? It's about... Following Jesus is about us losing, giving up, dying. Okay, so then we have this interaction that occurs between Barnabas and Paul who came to the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, to speak the word of God. And upon doing this, Bar-Jesus or Elimus opposed Barnabas and Paul. It says... Bar Jesus sought to turn the proconsul away from the faith. So we know the whole message that Paul and Barnabas are speaking is about Jesus. So it's important for us to notice the contrast here. Bar Jesus is a false prophet, he's a wannabe, he's an imposter of Jesus. Okay, but he's also a magician. He's trying to appear to have power, like Jesus had. He's seeking to imitate Jesus, but he's not a true follower. He just wants to take the parts that appeal to him, that make him look good, and then he's going to discard the other parts. It's an idea called syncretism, trying to take the best of everything, and basically he's trying to create a new religion as he opposes paul and barnabas we must notice what he does he's trying to turn the proconsul away from the faith okay that's what he's trying to turn sergius paulus away from is away from the faith so to be clear this is speaking about faith in jesus as someone who likely wants to impersonate Jesus by displaying a similar power and doing acts that can cause people to marvel at him, Bar-Jesus wants people to be impressed not with Jesus, but with himself. He wants the proconsul to put faith in him, not in Jesus, but in Bar-Jesus And all of this, then, is predicated on him acting impressively. He's got to be able to come before the proconsul and do things that cause him to marvel. He's got to do acts that impress, works. And this aligns with what we read about in the Bible and many other places. The opposite of faith is works. So this idea of turning someone away from faith oftentimes involves turning someone towards works. And what we see happening here is Bar Jesus is seeking to turn the proconsul away from faith in Jesus towards the works, the magic acts of Bar Jesus. And this is why Paul comes on so strongly against Bar Jesus. He says, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness. Now, interestingly, Bar Jesus, what that name means is son of the Savior. That's what that name means. Son of the Savior. So, Paul here then is clarifying Bar Jesus' true nature. He's saying, You are the son of the devil. You are not the son of Jesus. You are not the son of the Savior. You are the son of the devil. And he states, Bar Jesus is an enemy of all righteousness. So Paul knows that all righteousness is only found in Jesus. We possess righteousness by trusting in Jesus. Not by doing magic tricks, not by doing holy acts. Righteousness is ascertained through belief. So, righteousness is not found inside of us. We find righteousness outside of us, only in Jesus. And to think otherwise. To think that we can add to Jesus' righteousness or we can create righteousness inside of ourselves is to think the devil's thoughts. And so, what Paul says is it's either the straight way of salvation through Jesus or the crooked path of our own works. And they end up in very different spots. And then we're given this picture of what's happening. Blindness comes on Bar Jesus. This physical picture, the crooked way of Bar Jesus is filled with darkness, with blindness. Our attempts to save ourselves or to earn anything from God through good works is full of blindness. As is our attempts to kind of create another form of salvation, to be like bar Jesus, to kind of have this syncretism, this idea like maybe we would believe in Jesus and speak his name, but maybe there's other things that we also want to hold on to. Romans 1 talks about maybe what some of these things might be. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Okay, so we can try and create salvation by doing good works. And that doesn't get us any closer to Jesus, okay? But we can also try and create another form of salvation by saying we trust in Jesus and still murdering people in our hearts because we're angry at them or coveting after their stuff. Or maybe it's not even that we're trusting in Jesus. Maybe we're just full-throated hating people, right? Doing what Romans 1 talking about here. We're inventors of evil. We're faithless. We're heartless. We're haters of God. And this happens all the time in our world. But I just want to cover all the bases because we can do these things as well while still professing faith in Jesus. So sometimes we try to make ourselves into something by the good things we do. Sometimes It's through the evil things that we do. So our efforts to be righteous, whether it's through good or bad actions, it's all wrong. Righteousness is only found in Jesus. It's only found in us believing in Him. And the reality is we all need to be confronted with this. Because we all slip into these ways of living and thinking. Because when we sin, many of us probably feel like Jesus won't accept me because I've done this thing. Your acceptance and your lack of acceptance isn't based on those actions. It's based on our acceptance in front of God is based on Jesus actions for us. So the call is stop trusting in yourself. Trust in Jesus. That's good news. And then you don't have to live every day wondering, will Jesus accept me? Will He not accept me? Because it's not based on who you are or what you've done. And this is why we try and end our sermons every week this way with gospel application. The Christian life is not about who we are or what we've done. We're not going to give you this long list of go do these things, and this is kind of the magic trick for gaining acceptance in front of God. We want to remind ourselves not who we are and what we must do, but who Jesus is and what He has done for us. We want to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. Because our hope and our joy and our peace is pinned squarely on Him, not on ourselves. So I've got one point of gospel application for us this morning, and that's this reminder that Jesus is the big deal. We are not. We've got to get to the end of ourselves. We can easily fall into this idea of complacent church involvement. We're just showing up here because this is what we do. As followers of Jesus, we need to be reminded that the point of the Christian life is Jesus. Not all the things that we need to do. The point of the Christian life is Jesus. The fact that he is the one who saves is far and away the most important reality of our everyday existence. Okay, you're going to go, maybe you're going to celebrate mom, maybe you're going to go have a nice meal, maybe you're going to go do something. Celebrate mom, okay? But mom's not important, more, more, more important than Jesus. Okay. Your kids' activities are not more important than Jesus. Me, trying to be a good pastor is not more important than Jesus. Jesus has to stand over every square inch of our lives, every minute of our days. He is the big deal. This is why John the Baptist said in John 3.30, Jesus must increase. I must decrease. This is true right now for every single one of us. Jesus needs to increase. We need to decrease. We are not as important as we want to be. Jesus must be a bigger deal. We cannot overstate the glory and the power and the goodness of jesus and to lessen jesus in any way is to not see him for who he is so center church let's not spend our days trying to make a name for ourselves just trying to slap on the bumper sticker of bar jesus let's receive the name that jesus offers and jesus gives Forgiven, loved, saved. That's intended to be enough. And not for us to chase after all these things that this world says you need to be and to do to be something or to do something. Give your life to making much of Jesus' name. Not your own, but Jesus' name. And then let's be content with being sons and daughters of Jesus. And then let's build His church. Let's give of ourselves for this entity that will never go away, that will never die. It's the most sturdy organization this world will ever encounter, Jesus Church. So let's pour our lives into it. Maybe our kids won't be and do what other kids will be and do. But if they're trusting Jesus, that is what is most important. Maybe you won't walk the hallways of your place of employment. And people won't fawn over you. But if you're walking with Jesus, that's all that matters. That's all that matters. So let's build this church together, relentlessly. Alright, we're, we're now going to take a few moments to re- reflect on the ultimate reason that Jesus is better. His death on the cross is what sets Him apart in every way. So we, we talk about the cross every week because this is the center of Christianity. The cross is where love, is exemplified. Amen. And this is ultimately what every single one of us longs for and what we need. We want to be loved in the way that Jesus demonstrates love on the cross. So if you're a Christian believing in Jesus sacrifice for the forgiveness of your sins and I'm going to invite you to participate in the Lord's supper. You don't need to be a member of Center Church we practice what we call open communion. If you've never trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, then this meal isn't for you. But we want to be clear, Jesus is for you. And Center Church is for you. And we want to invite you to trust in Jesus. So if that's you, then I'd love to chat with you during this time or after the service. There's no judgment on you if you choose not to participate in this. So this bread up here is symbolizing Jesus' body that was given as a sin offering for our sins. And the juice and the wine is symbolizing Jesus' blood being shed for our sins. So in a moment, the worship team is going to lead us in worship through music, and you're going to be invited to come and to grab these items. If you'd like to pray with someone, I'd be happy to do that. I'll be off to the side and would love to be able to pray with you during this time. This is not intended to be an empty ritual, a time for us to just go through the motions. This is intended to have meaning, to have richness. That as we take that bread, as we drink the cup, that we would be reminded of the bitterness of our sins and the beauty of Jesus' sacrifice. He gave up everything for little old you and me, for our sins. This time is not intended to be individualistic either. We are a body, a church that, as we've talked about this morning, is intended to build one another up. So we want to eat together. We want to celebrate together. We want to remember Jesus together. We want to confess our sins together. It's normal for Jesus' church to confess their sins, the messy, ugly parts of our lives, to confess those with one another Christians are intended to be connected. I know we're Americans. We tend to isolate. We want to be individualistic. And I'm calling us out of that. It's only to our detriment to be individualistic. The Lord's Supper is reminding us that Jesus has reconciled us to Himself. And we then are intended to be reconciled one to another as His church. So take a moment, examine your heart, confess your sin to God and to others, pray with someone else. I'm going to invite you guys to stand. I'm going to read a couple verses and then we'll move into this time. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins.